All right, good morning, New Hope. Great to see you. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors, and I, I miss all of you a ton, and so grateful that you're taking time uh, out of your quarantine life to gather with us virtually all, all over the metro area. Uh, I'm excited to jump into uh, Philippians today with you. Uh, I'll be reading uh, the passage, uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 30, to kick us off here. So go ahead and turn to that, Philippians 1, 12 through 30, and uh, read along with me. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I grew up on the East Coast, spent a lot of my childhood going to beaches in North Carolina and Virginia. The mid-Atlantic beaches and coastline, totally different than the Oregon coast. Love the Oregon coast, gorgeous, beautiful, frigid as well. The mid-Atlantic coast, in the summer, it is really hot, and the water's like a bathtub. It's that type of temperature. So as a kid, we'd go there often. I'd spend a lot of my days for hours upon hours playing and frolicking in the waves. It's one of the first lessons I learned in my young life that waves are super powerful. When I was young, I would get caught off guard. I'd get distracted, chasing something, looking at something, and a wave would catch me unaware. And if that's ever happened to you, it's, it's kind of frightening and disorienting the power of the wave. You know, I'm like 50 pounds at age 10. It's what I would imagine being in a really large washing machine and just getting tumbled around and kicked around. You get slammed down in the sand, and then you emerge, and you're spitting out salt water and hacking and coughing. You have sand in your pockets and shells. You're all red from getting scraped. And at that age, I was often crying when that happened. I learned quickly to, to treat waves with respect. I also learned that if I, that I was able to harness their power, I would find great joy. 
I discovered this when my parents gave me a gift of, we call it on the East Coast, a boogie board. I'm not sure what you call it. Body board, perhaps. It's a short little board. It's not quite surfing. You kind of surf on your belly. And I learned pretty quickly how to do that, and it, it was a great joy. And you have to kind of watch for the waves way out, and you see them building and coming, and then you turn around, and you kind of get all ready, and then you have to time it perfectly at the right time. If you start kicking hard and swimming like this, and then you go like this, the, the wave will literally pick you up and you'll be on top of it. And if you've ever done it, it's just such incredible joy. I take, we take our girls, our family goes out to the North Carolina coast every couple of years. And I have the same boogie board I had as a kid and being able to do that with my girls still as like a, a grown man. Just last summer I was doing it and had the same yelps of joy when I would catch a wave and go all the way to the shore. When you understand waves and how powerful you are, it's ridiculous to think you could ever stop a wave. They, the waves, they're just an unstoppable force. And we're going to talk about that idea uh, today. We're in the second week of our uh, study on Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're calling it a, a new way of living. Uh, Paul's uh, traveled and planted a church in Philippi, which is modern-day Greece, first church in Europe he planted. He's writing 13 years later from a Roman jail cell awaiting death. And essentially, he's trying to get them and to get us to change the way we think, change our mindset, because if we change our mindset, it'll change how we live. Last week, he really focused on uh, getting us to see ourselves differently, to see ourselves as God sees us. He's going to continue this week to try to get us to change our minds. Uh, we have been using a book uh, called Reading Philippians by Dr. Uh, Nijay Gupta. He, he's a friend of mine, a theologian here in Portland. At some point in the series, you, you'll get to meet uh, Dr. Gupta. Little book, he wrote it to help us travel along through the letter of Philippians. Highly encourage you. There should be a link coming up that you can order it. Read it, read along with us. It will deepen uh, your experience in the book. As with any letter, we have to kind of read in what's going on. We only have one side of the story. We have Paul's perspective. We're reading from Paul's perspective. But we can do pretty good investigative work and kind of figure what is going on here. And apparently, we know we'll, we'll meet this character a little later, Epaphroditus. He is, he's visited Paul. He's the one that takes the letter back to the, to the Philippians. He's spent some time with Paul, given Paul a gift. The Philippians are clearly, they're, they're concerned about Paul. They've heard that Paul is in a Roman prison. They heard that he's awaiting trial, that potentially he will be put to death. And then they've heard a lot of his rivals and his opponents around him are using his imprisonment to get ahead. And they're seeing the scene and they're like, oh no, this is horrible. Did we kind of bet on the wrong horse? Is the gospel really good news? Are we losing? What's going on? And Paul clearly and <clears throat> confidently uses this section of the, of the letter, and this is the longest section of chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, to tell them that, that absolutely everything is okay. He, uh, he says, I want you to know, this is verse 12, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, now he's trying to change their mind here, has actually served to advance the gospel. Really, Paul? Advance the gospel? You're in jail awaiting death. Your rivals are winning. How's the gospel advancing? It's disorienting. They might have thought that he was a little crazy. So Paul gives them a couple examples of how the gospel is being advanced. Paul says one, and, and this comes from the, the passage I read at the top, 
Paul says the, the gospel is spreading throughout the entire imperial guard. We don't know exactly what this was because we don't know exactly where Paul is being housed, but it's quite possible this was the Praetorian guard that uh, served Caesar. The elite forces were perhaps guarding Paul. And can you imagine having guard duty for the apostle Paul? Imagine getting your assignment and you know, hey, what's my assignment? So we go, ah, no, I've got Paul three times. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for hours, the guy wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And he was always happy and joyous. It'd be like being chained to Luis Palau or something like that. Because of this, because Paul was the real deal, he totally believed in what he was saying and the spirit of God was working through him. Roman soldiers, imperial guard soldiers were coming to Christ and becoming followers of Jesus. That's pretty astounding and awesome. And these, can you imagine if you're a house church, we know uh, that there were perhaps four or five house churches at this time in Rome. And this is another thing Paul is telling the Philippians why the gospel is actually winning. He said the believers in Rome, the house church believers, the brothers and sisters are now going out confidently and boldly and fearlessly preaching the gospel, telling the story, living the story. And I think the two points are connected. Imagine if you're there and you get a, you know, a knock on a Sunday morning and you peek out the curtain and they're like, oh no, there's a bunch of Roman soldiers out there. We're getting arrested, it's over, run. And they can't run and so they crack the door open and the Roman soldier, instead of arresting them, like, hey, we're here for church? That had to be incredibly encouraging to the followers of Jesus in Rome. And that's what Paul is telling the followers of Jesus in Philippi. What you see is losing is actually winning. The gospel is advancing. Paul goes on and he addresses the concern that his rivals are winning and uh, taking advantage of his imprisonment. And again, he corrects them. He's like, you have, you have it wrong. It's in fact, okay. We don't know who these rivals were. They weren't preaching a false gospel. Uh, Paul would uh, address that differently. So they were, they were kind of ex- describing a real gospel, but they were doing so with, with an inner drive and an inner selfish ambition. Good thing no one in modern day church preaches the gospel with selfish ambition. Uh, That was a joke, because of course that happens. And that was happening in this context. And the Philippians are beside themselves. How could these people be doing this, taking advantage of the apostle Paul? And Paul is like, chill, (laughs) it's okay. You don't understand fully what's going on. God could even use this. This is what Paul says, but does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, here it is, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I continue to rejoice. uh, One of my my heroes is a woman named Fleming Rutledge. Uh, She's, I I think, probably nearing 80. Uh, She's, I think, one of our generation's best uh, Jesus-following thinkers and writers and preachers. She's pretty phenomenal. I was listening to a podcast uh, with her this past week and just soaking it in. It was so amazing. And the person interviewing her said, Fleming, as you look back at at 40, 50 years of preaching and you kind of look to your life and it may not be that much further, right? You're probably in your last season. When people think of Fleming Rutledge one day and think of your preaching, what do you want them to say? And she didn't miss a beat. She said that she preached Christ. And I began getting all teary because <laughs> that resonates so deeply with me. And this is what Paul's saying. Hey, yeah, their motives are poor and yeah, they're, they're going about it the wrong way. But you know what? 
the gospel is still being advanced. Paul's not saying our motives don't matter. He addresses that other places. He's trying to prove a greater point that God is able to take all of these things, my suffering, my imprisonment, my potential death, even my rival's selfish ambition and use it to advance the gospel because the gospel, like a mighty wave, is simply unstoppable. So then we get kind of a a, a look into Paul's mindset. He gives us a sneak peek into how he's thinking. He does this throughout the letter because he's kind of drawing us into his mindset. And again, what the the Philippians saw as losing, Paul says, is winning. And this is kind of how he sums up his mindset. One of the more famous verses in Philippians, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he kind of lays out two pathways. And the one pathway is he's like, if I have to die, if, if this is it for me, awesome, because I'm going to be with Jesus. And what we talked about on Easter a few weeks ago, Paul deeply believed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because Paul had looked to Jesus for life, death would not be an end, but a beginning. He deeply believed that. And he's like, let's go. I'm ready. That'll actually be better for me to be in the presence of Jesus. But Paul says, I know God's using me. He's using me in your life. He's using me here in Rome. He's using me with these guards that are chained to me. So I want to die to myself. And like, I know that even though it'd be better for me to actually die, I'm okay staying here and serving to advance the gospel. He flips the script again on them and it had to just be disorienting. Paul chooses uh, to be with them. Paul wanted them to know that, that the gospel was winning. Regardless of all the things they were looking at that told them the gospel was losing, Paul's like, no, you don't get it. The gospel's actually advancing because the gospel is unstoppable. And then he turns it on them. And then he turns it on us as well. And this is what he says. What, what does that look like to, to be aligned with the gospel in the way we live our lives, the way we do our lives? This is what he says. Verses 27 through 30. A lot of scholars think this is the central challenge of the entire book. So if you're not paying attention up to this point, pay attention. Here it goes. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw that I have, and now hear that I still have. This is the key verse. If you're gonna highlight one verse, highlight verse 27, if you're a Bible highlighter, it is perhaps the key verse of the entire letter. Paul says, now that you know that the gospel's an unstoppable force, align your lives with it. He says his, his actual verbiage is conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. This Greek phrase, conduct yourselves, it, it, it's kind of a cool word. It literally, it's, it's like a political word in a sense, but the first century readers would have heard citizenship. That's what they would have understood in that. So Paul's saying essentially, be a citizen of the gospel. That's what Nietzsche uh, would say. That's his phrase, be a gospel citizen. Citizenship was, was huge in the Roman Empire. If you had Roman citizenship, it was a life changer. But the Romans understood to be a Roman citizen also had stewardship and responsibility attached to it. If you were a Roman citizen, you were expected to serve and behave as a Roman citizen. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's like, now that you understand this unstoppable gospel we're all a part of, be a citizen of that gospel. So if you're following along, you might ask the question, 
what's the gospel? And immediately, uh, American Christians, I think, especially, we read into that and we have our own understanding. You may think the gospel, kind of a nominal understanding, is maybe it's on a track and, and you believe these couple propositions and you say a prayer and that's the gospel. That's maybe a piece of the gospel, but the gospel is way more. So understand what the gospel is, we have to understand how the writers of the gospel use the words. We go to the, to the scriptures. And it becomes pretty clear how the writers of, of scripture are using this term. The Greek term is uh, euangelion, and it's made from kind of two words. Uh, eu, which means good, and angelion, which means announcement. We typically say, what does the gospel mean? And we say, good news. And that's not wrong, but a more precise definition would be good announcement. News is just uh, reporting on a bunch of things happening that may, may or may not be that important. But an announcement... When an announcement is made, it's a game changer. It should be. It creates news. It's a catalyst for news. So the gospel, the the bare bones definition of it is good announcement. Then we have to ask, well, announcement about what? What's what's the good announcement? And then we go and we look, well, how how would the first century... uh, readers and how the people in Philippi, how the people in Rome have understood this term. They would have understood it through the lens of Caesar uh, ruling. We have evidence that this term was used when Augustus Caesar was announced as the new Caesar. It's good news, an announcement about the new Caesar who's going to bring peace and prosperity and justice. Of course, that rarely happened. That was the hope though. Here's this new ruler. Here's this new king. It's a good announcement and it's going to bring in that person's reign that will bring restoration over the land. That was just the understanding of the word. But New Testament writers were also interacting with the Hebrew scriptures, as we know. And we go back to the prophet Isaiah and other Isaiahs or other prophets that use this idea of good news. They're using it in connection to this promise that runs through scripture that one day God would sing this Messiah, this king that would bring the kingdom of God that would renew everything. And of course, that was one of Jesus's uh, main messages. So when Paul's using the term gospel, let's bring it all together here. He's talking about a good announcement. He's talking about the idea of the Messiah who he sees and understands is is Jesus coming in and being God, the king, who is now reigning and will bring bring restoration to the land. That's the idea of gospel. I will just give a a simple uh, definition uh, of gospel as uh, of the announcement of God's reign and restoration through King Jesus. The announcement of God's reign and restoration through King Jesus. I think that's a good precise definition. Now at the heart of that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was his inauguration. That's the catalytic event for the kingdom of God that made him king and allows him to redeem and restore and renew. And does that have an impact on you and me? Absolutely. When we, when we look with faith to King Jesus, our lives are made right with God and we begin that restoration process. But that's only one piece of it. To make it just about the individual marginalizes the gospel. It's way bigger It's about God coming in the flesh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, King Jesus, to reign forever and restore uh, all things. So now, you know, we understand what the gospel is. This is this powerful, unstoppable wave. And Paul's like, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that gospel. Be a gospel citizen. Well, you might ask John, 
What does it mean to be a gospel citizen? Thanks for asking. Paul answers it right away in the verses we read, 27 through 30. He gives us a couple qualities of what it means to live with the citizenship of the kingdom of God, to think differently about ourselves, to wake up in the morning and be like, I'm a gospel citizen. It's gonna change the way I live today. How? And Paul tells us, boom, boom, boom. The first first quality we see of being a gospel citizen is that gospel citizens stand together. Paul says, then whether I come to you and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together for one, for the faith of the gospel. Together, one, together, uh, striving together, all these things. Nietzsche, he has his own translation in the book that I hopefully you'll get and read. He translates striving together as fighting together. He sees military imagery throughout the book and, and we see military imagery throughout Paul's letters. So I think that he's probably correct. Paul spent uh, a lot of time in prison. He wrote a lot of letters from prison. He's chained to a guard. So he's, he's getting a relationship with him. He's hearing war stories. He's thinking through that imagery and he m- most uh, probably is in this state as well. So when he says that we stand firm He's probably thinking about a military standing firm. So we know a little bit about how the Romans did, did military and, and up on the screen will come a, a few formations that the Romans used. They were the most successful military engine of its kind at, at that time. And so we have uh, up on the screen will come what's been called the turtle formation. And then next on the screen will come up what's called the triple line formation. And then finally, uh, up on your screen will will come what's called the wedge or the V formation. What do you see that's in common with all of them? Uh, You can see how they'd be effective in battle, to protect, to move forward, to gain land, all those types of things. We don't have to know much about the military to see that. What's crucial about each of the formations is for it to work, you can't break rank. To work, you've got to stay together, arm in arm, locked together, because if people start breaking out and going down and leaving, then the whole formation comes apart. I think Paul's evoking this kind of idea. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. The scriptures are clear in that. We're fighting against the powers and the entities of evil and suffering in the world. And as followers of Jesus, King Jesus, in his new kingdom, as gospel citizens, one of our qualities is we stand together. We don't break rank. We stay arm in arm together. A lot of people think maybe the Apostle Paul was a solitary figure. We think of that, this kind of, you know, face against the wind, New Testament prophet just going throughout the world on a boat alone preaching the gospel. Not true. If you follow Paul, he's always with people. He, he, he arrived in Philippi with Silas and, and maybe even Luke. Right now in prison, he's co-writing the letter with Timothy. Epaphroditus is right there. Everywhere we look, Paul's doing life with others. Paul was deeply devoted to doing life with others and to community. And he said that is part of being a gospel citizen, that we do life together, that, that what unites us is far greater than what divides us because we serve the same king. We're part of the same kingdom. In this season, pandemic, uh, mayhem, economic uh, distress, political upheaval. There's so many things pressing upon us. And oftentimes those things break us apart and divide. As followers of King Jesus, as gospel citizens, one of our qualities is we don't do that. We stand firm. Secondly, gospel citizens live boldly. This is what Paul says. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, 
we just read this, striving together is one for the faith of the gospel. And then catch this, without being what? Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Fear is just a natural impulse. Our brains are actually constructed that way and wired that way that we have a part of our brain devoted to fear. One of the most frequent, if not the most frequent command in all of scripture, I bet you can guess it, is do not what? Do not fear. You know, you wonder how many times it's in scripture? Guess, just tell the person beside you, take a guess. How many times do you think that command, do not fear, is in scripture? Write it on Facebook Lives, give, give it a go. What do you think? Do not fear, how many times? 365, surprising, isn't it? Like one for every day of the week. God knows that literally our brains are engineered to fear. He's like, don't fear. He's, saying, he's not saying don't fear because uh, we're like super strong, courageous people. I don't think that was even necessary, Paul. That's not me. I'm more like the cowardly lion. I get out of bed in the morning and my knees are knocking. That's what comes naturally to me. If that's what comes naturally to you, don't shame yourself. That's okay. That's natural. That's why Paul's telling us he wants us to think differently. He's like, don't fear. Not because you're courageous or I'm courageous, because we're gospel citizens. And the gospel is unstoppable. And we know who our king is from the minute we get up in the morning to the minute we go to bed at night. We see this throughout his letter. Here's a couple uh, examples. Six verses into the letter, Paul writes, and this will uh, be bolded, I think, on your screens, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Then 14 verses in, we read uh, Paul. He states this triumphantly. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become what? confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel, what? Without fear. And again, in verse 25, after Paul talks about how dying is gain, he says that he is confident of this. He's confident that if he dies, he'll be in the presence of King Jesus and it's okay. This is not Paul challenging us to be irrational daredevils. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the unstoppable gospel. Later, in perhaps the last letter that Paul ever wrote before he actually did die, he's writing to his co-author, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power. I, uh, I, as I've shared with you numerous times, I've been reading uh, with my daughter Eden through re- uh, The Lord of the Rings. And I came a, 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 across another great uh, illustration and return of the king this week and I, I feel it already I know you're probably getting annoyed at uh, Lord of the Rings illustrations tough deal with it I got to preach out of what I'm going through so this is what I'm reading I hadn't read them since I was 11 of course watched the movies and it's been fantastic if you've never read them uh, please take the extra time during the quarantine to do it we got to, I hope I don't spoil the story, but we got to where the ring was destroyed and I knew that was kind of the pinnacle of the story and it was amazing and everyone lived happily ever after kind of deal. Then I noticed, I never remembered this, that there's another third of the book left. And I'm like, what is this gonna be about? That was not in the movies, but wanting to finish, I was like, let's go. And it's remarkable. And there's this scene uh, where the four hobbits, the four main hobbits, are coming back into the Shire after all their adventures. And they're triumphant and they're wearing battle gear and they're totally changed from when they left. And if you remember, the Shire is where the hobbits live and it's just like utopia. Just festivities and singing and and, uh, eating and it's just a wonderful place. When the minute they come back in, they notice something's different. There's a gate 
and there's an ominous feel to the land and then there's fear and the gardens are dying and the buildings are destroyed and people's eyes are downcast. It's the total opposite of what it was when they left. And as they dig in a little bit, they discover that evil forces have come into the Shire and that they're holding it in bondage and they're holding the people in bondage and it's like a totalitarian state. And I would be scared they immediately, the forces come and, and threaten to arrest them and take them to the, the head ruffian in charge. But Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin, so interesting. Do you think that they were scared? <laughs> no. They, when they came to arrest them in the book, they actually laugh at them. They laugh at them with a glimmer in their eye and with joy in their hearts. Why did they laugh? Because they were super courageous hobbits? Maybe, but I don't think so. They laughed because they knew who their king was. Because Aragorn was on the throne. And he was their friend. And he was the king that's ruling and reigning and is going to restore all things and make all things right. The ruffians didn't know it. The news hadn't reached the shower, but they knew it. And they laughed at these evil folks. And they said, oh, you don't know, do you? You don't know that evil has been beheaded, that evil has fallen, that it's game over. You don't know who we serve and you don't know that the king is coming. That's the type of mentality that Paul wants gospel citizens to have. He wants you to have it. He wants me to have it. Yes, our knees may naturally knock, but because we're gospel citizens of an unstoppable gospel, we get out of bed in the morning, whatever comes our way, we live boldly. And finally, gospel citizens see suffering as opportunity. The Philippians saw Paul's suffering, his imprisonment, his impending death, his rivals winning as game over, as the gospel losing. And Paul, from the very first, is trying to flip their thinking. Guys, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And then Paul tells them that God can use anything and everything, and that God will use anything and everything, even suffering, to advance the gospel. Paul because he had the mindset of a gospel citizen, saw suffering as an opportunity. Here's how he says it. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, this is verse 29, uh, not only to believe in him, but, but also to suffer for him. Paul's like, what I've been going through, that gift's been given to you too. When suffering comes your way, and it will, maybe you're in it now, maybe I'm in it now, but if you're not, it will. Paul's telling us when it comes your way, see it as an opportunity. Uh, suffering, let's think of suffering this way because I think we can have some misnomers about suffering. Suffering biblically is not good. God hates suffering. God did not create suffering. God's not the author of suffering. Suffering is not good. God came in the flesh to destroy suffering and end the reign of suffering, but it hasn't happened yet. The kingdom hasn't fully come yet. Thus, there's still evil and suffering in the land. Like the hobbits coming to the shower, there's still remnants of that there. And because the gospel's so unstoppable, Paul is saying that until suffering is finally and fully removed, and it will be one day, until then, God uses even suffering to advance his kingdom come. So think of it this way. Suffering's not good, but suffering can be used for good. Nietzsche in his book has this great line that when I read, I was like, ah, that's great writing. That's so true. He says, Paul saw his shackles as conductors of the gospel's power. I always think of it uh, like a compost bin. If you, if you compost, if not, you should compost. 
I don't want to shame you, but you should. So compost is like when you take biodegradable stuff and eggshells and things like that that you're done with and you're not going to use and there's kind of no use in them in and of themselves, but they will they'll biodegrade in time. And, and so we throw them all together and you have a compost bin, probably we do, it gets really nasty and smelly and then you're forced to take it out. You, you're with me. And then you throw it in a bigger compost bin. What do you discover about compost? Given time, and it takes time, given some heat, <laughs> it takes heat, that compost, the stuff that's not useful for anything, i.e. suffering and the things we don't like about life, is transformed, isn't it? And it becomes this rich soil-like substance that gives birth to life. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, you guys think that my chains and my impending death and my rivals mean that I'm losing not losing, the gospel's not losing, it's advancing. We're winning, he used that word advance twice. It's, it's being propelled forward. God can use anything and everything in your life and my life to advance the gospel because the gospel is unstoppable. And if we have that mindset, it changes how we live. We see this in, in a woman, you may know her story, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she was one of my first Christian Jesus-following heroes. I remember reading her life story, I think when I was like 10 or 11, early on, my parents gifted me with a copy of her story. She had a diving accident when she was 17, became a, a quadriplegic, and then she wrote this, at, I think 26, wrote this best-selling uh, story of her life of how, despite her suffering, God was transforming her and God was using her. And it just spread like wildfire all over the world. I think it sold like five million copies or something. I just remember seeing pictures of this woman who couldn't use her hands or her legs, painting these remarkable pictures with her lips. And as a young boy who was trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus, I'm like, what is this? It was a little disorienting. Uh, Johnny's gone on to, to use uh, the platform that, that uh, her, her accent has given her to advance the gospel. It would look like she's losing. She's like, I'm not losing, and the gospel's not losing. She started all kind of organizations. Uh, Johnny and friends work with families of the disabled. They do retreats all over the country. They're in 44 countries all over the world. She started an organization uh, called Wheels for the World, giving away over 100,000 wheelchairs. And she's even found a way to use uh, prisoners in this process to give them dignity. So she'll take wheelchairs into prisons and they'll restore the wheelchairs and then ship them out to some crazy place all over the world where wheelchairs are needed and vital for people with disability having mo mobility. She started an organization called Cause for Life that works with disabled kids in orphanages all over the world, giving them dignity. I could go on and on. She was working with presidents and leaders to pass the American with Disabilities Act. She's used uh, what came her way in the suffering that is not good. She sees how God is using it for good. And her gospel citizen mindset leans into that with joy. And she's a joyous individual. Very recently, they were having some big gala celebrating uh, her life, and she's been, she's been disabled, uh, a quadriplegic for over 50 years. She's had breast cancer twice. She has chronic pain from a displaced hip and scoliosis. And yet she just continues to give that over to the Lord to allow him to use that, despite the fact that it's really hard and she can't wait to be redeemed one day. And they're having this gala, and she's, she's telling the story. I read this interview with her, and she said this college student came up and said, can I ask you a question? She's kind of sheepish. She, yeah, and she's like, do you think any of this would have happened without your, your, your diving accident? And Johnny stopped and she said, yeah, it's a good question. 
She said, that's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. <laughs> what? That's like the Philippians responding to Paul, like, you're grateful to me. What is going on there? What do you mean you're winning? She wasn't saying that it's good, the accident happened, that suffering is not good, but God uses it for good. That's a gospel citizen mindset. It's transformative into how we live. The waves that I would ride on the East Coast were little baby waves, even though in my mind, even today, they seem like huge waves, but huge waves where we go are like five or six feet seem like behemoth waves. Well, there's this whole deal about big wave riding. It's a, a, a select group of people that have the, the guts to do that. And they travel the world to find these unique coastlines that funnel these waves into mammoth waves. One of these places is, is uh, the coastline of, of Portugal. The two largest waves ever ridden have come off this coastline. In 2017, a Brazilian a surfer uh, rode to record what is the, the, the largest wave ever ridden. I think there's a video that is going to start to play on your screen of this actual wave, and you'll see the little teeny surfer um, surfing down it. I mean, look at this wave. It's unbelievable. 80 feet high. Can you imagine for a second saying, yeah, I could stop that wave. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is, is this unstoppable force. I know it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it didn't to the Philippians. It seems like we're losing, but it's the truth. And if we look back through history, if we look around with, with eyes that can see, as Jesus said, we see the forces of the gospel. We see God's reign and his restoration in King Jesus sweeping our hearts and sweeping the lands and slowly but surely making all things new. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that today? Tomorrow morning when you get up, out of bed and you face the news, do you face the, the troubles and the trials of our lives? Do you believe that? Will you choose to believe that and think differently? That Jesus reigns and Jesus rules and he's my king and he's your king and the gospel's unstoppable and he will, bank on it, make all things new. That's the mindset of a gospel citizen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that right now your son sits on the throne at your right hand and reigns in power and authority. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Our world is filled with suffering and evil. It's not gone. We want it to be gone. Use us as gospel citizens, as your hands and feet to help get it out of here. We're gonna need your strength and help to do that. Help us to be part of your kingdom movement that is making all things new. Uh, change our minds, God. Help us to think like the Apostle Paul. Help us to think like, like Johnny Erickson Tata as a gospel citizen, that, that, that we're united, we stand together, we don't break rank. We're, we're not fearful. We are bold, and when suffering comes, we accept it, we don't celebrate it. It's, it's not good, but we see it as an opportunity for you to be exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that you're able to accomplish that. Uh, thank you, God, for this encouragement today. Uh, get it into our hearts, get it into our lives, and change the way we live for your glory, God. We pray this in Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen.